Uh, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, so what is marriage? Who gets to define it? What's the purpose of it? Is there any benefit to marriage? There was a seven-year-old girl who watched Cinderella, and after watching the movie, she headed over to a friend's house, and the mom was asking her about the movie, and the mom wanted to show that she knew what Cinderella was like. So she, she told the little girl, I know the ending of that story. And the girl said, well, what's the ending? And she said, Cinderella and the prince lived happily ever after. And the seven-year-old said, no, they got married. I think we laugh because often marriage isn't viewed the way it once was. Sometimes it isn't something that we think of as this great and glorious thing. Uh, the people have redefined it. The government has redefined it. And yet, as we look at it, really, marriage was created by God. It was instituted by God. And it finds its purpose through God. In the beginning in Genesis 2, God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God made Eve. It says in verse 21, The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Commentator Matthew Henry said this, the woman was made out of Adam's side. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. God put it this way, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. See, God held the first marriage ceremony right there with Adam and Eve. And God created marriage for a mutual benefit between the husband and the wife. He defined marriage as one man and one woman to become one flesh for one life. The New Testament gives purpose to marriage. Over the last ten weeks, we've been looking at the book of Colossians, and we've been looking at that God is greater than anything this world has to offer, that Christ is supreme over all things. And as we've transitioned into chapter 3, we've, we started looking at how God is supreme over our lives. And if He is truly supreme, truly sovereign, truly preeminent over all things... Then a few weeks ago, we looked at God, how God is sovereign over our sexuality. Last week, we looked at how God is sovereign over relationships with each other. And this week, we're going to look at how God is sovereign over our home. So Colossians 3 has instructions on how to follow God's sovereignty and how that should affect relationships from the wife to the husband, the husband to the wife, the kids to the parents, the parents to the kids. And so let's pray and open God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, we know as we approach this topic, there are many voices that speak into it. And many of us come with baggage. 
Maybe we've had relationships that have failed. We have a marriage that's struggling. We are struggling to parent our kids or struggling to relate to our parents. And all this baggage can sometimes lead us as we open your word to to come at it with a certain bent, a certain direction. And Lord, we just pray that as we study your word, we pray that you'd reveal your will through it. Speak through it. Your word changes lives. Lord, help me to speak with clarity and help it to be honoring to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. This is what we call a household code. Throughout the history of the Greek and Roman Empire, many household codes are written, and there were ways to define how societal relationships should happen. Aristotle's household code divided into the essential relations into master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. In Aristotle's household code, he emphasized the, the head of the house, the patriarch, and how he had authority over all those in the household. Household codes are written by Jewish philosophers like Philo and Josephus. It was common in Jewish and Gentile societies alike. And so Paul is going to speak to a specific set of people, and he's going to use a way of teaching that was very familiar to them, something that they would have immediately recognized. Now, earlier in the chapter, Paul wrote here, talking about the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And John did a great job of explaining that, of how when they would gather in these house churches, you would have a slave and a slave master worshiping together. You'd have a barbarian and a Scythian worshiping together. You'd have a Jew and a Gentile worshiping together. And they're all completely equal in Christ. Complete equality. So because of that statement just a few verses before, some will go to this section of Colossians and say that, okay, if there was true equality... Why does Paul phrase his instructions this way? If there is true equality, then he can't mean what it seems to be meaning here. So therefore, they would say either, well, this is a later edition. Paul didn't even write it. Someone else inserted it later. Or they would say that because the culture was patriarchal, Paul basically just didn't want to rock the societal boat. And so he said, you know, just, just kind of live in a way that the society lives in order that this doesn't make them upset about your homes And so therefore, you know, you can just focus on these other things. But Paul seems to be very willing to rock the boat in many other areas. Others will just say, well, this is Paul's opinion, and so therefore not authoritative. But I want to argue today that even though this is written to a very specific context, that it actually is authoritative. But what we need to do is try and understand their context and our context, and hopefully that will help bring this to light. Now, if you're to read further, you'll recognize that it actually has uh, instructions for masters to slaves and slaves to masters. And when you read that, you go, what in the world? And my plan originally was to cover all that. And my sermon was like two hours and 15 minutes. And 
I, so okay, someone wants me to do that? Well, you're the one person that wants to do it. So the rest of us, so what I'm actually going to do is I'm actually going to create a video either this week or next week with a sermon on that. And I'm going to post it on YouTube. And I'm going to share the link with the church so you guys can hear me handle that topic well. Because I think we live in a very different culture than that was back then. 30 to 40% of people in the Greco-Roman world were slaves. Uh, some estimate that as many as two-thirds were slaves at some point. Uh, most people were slaves for about seven years. In Rome proper, 80 to 90% of the people that lived in Rome were slaves. So it was a much different context, a different kind of slavery. Um, but at the same time, we need to address, you know, the Bible teaches that slavery is wrong. And people go, well, Paul says this, and I just want to make sure we address that well. So there will be a video coming out on that soon. But one thing that's helpful as we try to interpret scriptures is to use the interpretive journey. And for those of you at North Point that I think are seniors, you probably have learned this. I see heads nodding, so we can go to this, this screen here. The idea is that we live in a very different time now than the people did in the New Testament. And so what we want to do as we're studying scriptures, we want to go back to their town and, and realize that the book of Colossians was written in about 60 A.D. in a very different cultural context than what we're living in right now. And so Paul is writing to these Christians in Colossae, and he's writing about very specific, specific circumstances. And because of that, we've been talking about Gnosticism, because that was a heresy that came in. And we keep referencing it. And none of you are going to like, you know, the, the store and thinking about Gnosticism. None of, nobody's going in and thinking about, can I buy this meat at Meyer or was it sacrificed to idols? There's a lots of different contexts. So we look at their town, try to understand that. And then we look at, there's a difference between where they are and where we are. Culture, language, time, situation, the new government. And so one of the things I try to do every Sunday is I try to give you the overarching principles that are applicable to every single Christian that has ever lived. These are the principles that are true regardless of if you're a Christian in 60 A.D. or a Christian in 1000 A.D. or a Christian today. But then the last step is what I usually do in the application, is I try to see how can I apply this to, to my life, or what I try to do is how can we as a church apply this to our lives. Culture in many ways is like water. We usually do not notice the water we drink every day that it has any specific taste. We just go, that's what my water tastes like. But only when we travel somewhere else does it strike us that the water there tastes funny. <laughs> have you experienced that? You travel somewhere else, you're like, There's, the water just tastes, this does not have enough chlorine. For those of you that grew up in the city, you know. For those that grew up in the country, you're like, this doesn't have enough iron. You know, you're trying to figure stuff out. But that's kind of how it is when we are in a different place, we notice something's different. When we read the scriptures, we notice it's a different culture. But even though this is a different culture, the ideas contained in this passage are very counter-cultural. In the nine verses here where Paul outlines the household codes, he references the lordship of Christ seven different times. In other words, when you think about how your faith affects your home, it's all about following Jesus. It's about, all about giving him lordship of your marriage, of your parenting, of your obedience to your parents. So let's dig in. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. 
There might not be a verse in the Bible that does that causes a more visceral, visceral response in some people. The way I thought of it this week is when you're watching The Lion King and they go, Mufasa, ooh, Mufasa, ooh, you remember that? It's kind of like submission, ooh, submission, ooh. It's like a, a, a yucky word to those that are in our culture. When, when Sandy and I were getting ready to get married, uh, we had a bridal shower, and my sister did a devotional. And the devotional was how to be a submissive wife. Now, Sandy's family is not, they're not Christians, and it was not paired with the other side of the coin, how to be a loving husband. And so needless to say, they were worried she was marrying an authoritative jerk who was going to make, him, make her do anything I wanted her to do. That was essentially what they walked away with, concern that we should call off the marriage. So I told my youth pastor who was speaking at my, at my marriage, emphasize what the husband have, has to do. Overemphasize it, please. Help them understand the beautiful picture of marriage that Christianity presents. So whenever you read a verse and you have a visceral response, the appropriate question to ask is this. Am I willing to believe and submit to a verse even if it doesn't teach what I want to teach? Or do I believe God's word is true and that it is good? Really, that's what it comes down to when we look at the scriptures. Do I believe that this is true even if it goes against my emotions? So because of that, I think it's helpful to start with the husbands so you can see a better picture of how these things relate and then move on to the wives 19 husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them now it's interesting because in our culture the the command that causes a stir is wives submit to your husbands but in that culture the command that actually would have caused the stir would be this in all the other household codes Every single household code, other than Christians, had no instructions for husbands to love their wives. None. Not one example. This would have been revolutionary in that day. The Greek word here is agape. It describes this selfless, sacrificial, self-giving love. Paul didn't choose to use eros, which would be romantic love, or phileo, which would be friendship love. He said, husbands, agape your wives. Now, we need to recognize how countercultural this was. As mentioned by John last week, the purpose of wives in the Greco-Roman world was this, to bear children. That was pretty much it. Because they had mistresses for sexual pleasure, brothels for prostitutes, They had temples where you could go and worship the gods of fertility with prostitutes. They had slaves that they used for sex. And so this teaching, husbands love your wives, would have been revolutionary in a culture of indulgence, power, and victimization. William William Barclay writes it this way. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. She lived in women's apartments and did not join her man even for meals. From her there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity. But her husband could go out as much as he chose. He could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. 
both under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs of that day, all the privileges belong to the husbands and all the duties belong to the wife. But here, Paul says, husbands, agape your wives. Love them sacrificially. Love them selflessly. Love them like Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul explains how the husbands are to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do? He gave up his status. He gave up his position of authority. He came to the earth. He came as a servant to serve others. And ultimately, he laid down his life for his bride, the church, and died so that we could have life. If there's not a more selfless, sacrificial example of what it looks like to lead your home than Christ, this is it. Husbands selflessly, sacrificially giving everything, agape your wife. Men, we're called to love our lives like that, to lay down our rights, to serve our wives, to sacrifice for our wives, to love them. So the first command is love your wives. The second command is do not be harsh with them. This Greek word has a basic sense of of being made bitter when it's used uh, as a verb in the New Testament. You think of bitter water or your stomach turned bitter when it's used as a noun. It's this attitude of bitterness when it's used as an adjective. It refers to bitter water or Envy, in other Greek writing of the day, it was used to refer to domineering and harsh rulers. So in other words, to truly love your wife, you are not to be harsh or to flame an attitude of bitterness. And working with a lot of couples over the last 20 years, a common theme that I see for husbands as I meet with them is that often there's a lot of bitterness there. Bitterness over lack of respect, bitterness over unmet expectations, bitterness over parenting differences, bitterness over the lack of physical intimacy, bitterness over all sorts of kind of things. And unfortunately, when I talk to the wives, I often hear that their husbands are harsh with them, harsh in the way they respond, harsh with their kids when they respond. And so, in other words, husbands don't be harsh and don't harbor bitterness Peter puts it this way, which I think is very helpful. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Love them. Listen to them. Serve them. Care for them. Put their interests above your own. Because how you treat your wife matters. We are called as husbands to lead. And so that means that when there is a a conflict... I have changed my attitude many years ago. I said, I want to be the first to apologize. Because to lead well means to lead well in forgiveness. It means to lead well in apology. It means to lead well in every area. The first to pray, the first to apologize, and to not be passive. I think there's an epidemic of passivity among men in general. And part of it, I think, sometimes is because we work so hard all day. We get home and we just got nothing left. But when you get home, you're actually clocking into the most important job you have each and every day. That is the time where you're called to lead, not to be passive. 
So, so many wives are frustrated because they feel like all the discipline of their kids falls on them. All the leadership in the home falls on them. But God has called men to lead. So how you treat your wives matters. How you respond to her when, she ain't, when, when you're angry matters. How you care for her when she does things that, don't like, that you don't like or that frustrate you matters. How you treat her when she sins against you matters. How you forgive her for her mistakes or her for past failures matters. Husbands, agape your wives. Husbands, do not be harsh with them. Husbands, live in an understanding way. Wives, would you like to live with a man like that? A man that loves you, that takes care of your needs, that listens to you and cares about your wants and desires, that makes sacrifices for you, that's gentle but not harsh, that spiritually leads you and your family. This is a beautiful thing when done well. See, if we only have one half of the picture, the other half doesn't make sense. And so husbands, we're called to sacrificially, selflessly love our wives. Second, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Douglas Moo points out that typically the Greek word for submit is used to describe voluntarily putting oneself under the authority or direction of someone or something else. Voluntarily, this is, this is something that's done voluntarily, putting oneself under the authority or direction of someone or something else. In Ephesians 5, before Paul goes into the descriptions of, how, of the home, he says, submit yourselves one to another. And he looks at what this mutual submission, and then he goes through what it looks like in all these different household codes. In a marriage, it looks like husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to their husbands. But this idea of submission is all throughout the New Testament. So if you're like, if you respond viscerally to that, then you have to respond viscerally to all these other things. In Hebrews 12, all believers are to submit to God. In Romans 8, next slide please. Uh, Romans 8, believers are to submit to God's law. Ephesians 5, the church is to submit to Christ. In Romans 10, Jews are to submit to God's righteousness. In Romans 13, we as citizens of America are called to uh, submit to our government. In 1 Corinthians 16, Christians are called to submit to their leaders, congregations in Hebrews 13, to their elders. Uh, Titus 2 and 1 Peter 2, slaves to their masters. 1 Peter 5, young men to older men. Luke 2, children to parents. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, wives to their husbands. In other words, if you are a Christian, you are called to voluntarily submit in many areas of your life. This is not something that we should respond to in a way that is visceral. Now notice, Paul says to the children, children obey your parents, but he doesn't say to the wives, wives obey your husbands. He uses this word submit. In the words of one theologian, obedience naturally fits a situation in which orders are being issued and in which the party obeying has little choice in the matter. Parents to kids. But submission as mentioned earlier, suggests a voluntary willingness. Go ahead and go to the next slide. A voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. To submit is to recognize a relationship order established by God. 
But notice in which way the women are called to submit, as is fitting in the Lord. See, there's this condition, this as is fitting in the Lord. Your ultimate submission, wives, is to God first. So if your husband is asking you to do something that would go against God, you have to obey God first. You're called to recognize that God has established this order in the home and the husband is the head of the home, but ultimately Christ is the head of your husband and of your family. Ephesians 5 puts it this way, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now there's lots of confusion about what submission is and what it isn't. So, so I decided to write seven points about submission. Now these are my own points. I think they're biblical. I think they're based on biblical things, but I just want to flesh them out to hopefully help us understand. First, submission is not about equality. It's not about equality. We see, uh, as Paul writes many times, that all are equal. Slave or free, Scythian, barbarian, all these things. God created mankind in his image. And when you, I, the helpful thing for me to do is to look at the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all completely equal. And yet the Son submits to the will of the Father, and the Spirit exalts the Son. Within the Trinity, there's submission, even though there is equality. Church, it talks about church submitting to your elders. Under God, all of us are equal. But God has called me to lead and called the church to submit. And that's a weird thing. Again, we have that response as individual Americans to this word. But young men are called to submit to older women. We can go back through all those examples. Submission is not about equality. Second, submission isn't solely dependent on the holiness of the husband. In First Peter 3, Peter gives the example of a wife who has a husband who's not a Christian. He says, wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. He's saying by doing this, you're actually going to point them to Jesus, and you're actually going to have a chance to win them over in the faith. Three, submission is limited by what honors Christ. Our first priority is following Christ. So in the same way that we are called to submit to our government, Peter, Paul, Silas, when they were told, stop talking about Jesus, said we have to serve God rather than men. And they refused to submit to the government in that way. And so, wives, it's, it's okay to disagree. We have this beautiful story in the book of Esther where Esther goes before her husband and that day risking her life. And says, look, you're going to commit genocide and it's wrong. You're going to kill my people. And his husband relents. Because the wife shared something with him. It's okay to express your opinions and concerns. Five, submission does not extend beyond the husband. This is what I mean. This is wives submit to your husband, not women submit to men. So when I worked uh, in the secular world, I had women bosses. And because they were my boss, I submitted to them. There was nothing wrong with that. I had good women bosses and bad women bosses. I had good men bosses and bad men bosses. So this is the instructions for the home. Number six, I firmly believe that submission is more about a demeanor than a list of actions. 
When mankind sin in Genesis 3, there are some consequences to that. Pain in childbirth, the, to- the ground is hard to work, but one of them is a woman's desire will be for her husband. And what that means is she'll desire to rule over her husband, and the husband will rule over her. What that means is husband's natural inclination is to not rule in a selfless way, but rather to rule authoritarianly. So it's this idea that there's going to be this fight for power in the marriage. But submission, I believe, is all about a demeanor. Do you as a wife have a, a demeanor of submission? Seven, marital roles present a picture of Christ to the world. And, and we'll end with the application. We'll come back to that. So we'll, we'll come back to this. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. My favorite verse in the scriptures. No, I'm joking. Now, what's different about this in the secular codes, it would only address the patriarch. But here, Paul actually addresses the children as equals. This would be read in the church, and children are actually addressed individually. Now, the Greek word here, technon, can be used for any age of kids. So it really could be like, you know, someone who's 75, and they talk about their kids who are, you know, 50. But within the context of the household codes, the implication is that this would be children in the home. So this would include little kids, it would include teenagers, might even include, you know, some that are in college and still living at home. Now, kids and teens, I want to talk to you for a minute. You might not realize this, but your parents know more than you do. Now, now hear me out, okay? As, four, as a 41-year-old, I know more than I did when I was 31. As a 31-year-old, I knew more than I did as 21. As a 21-year-old, I thought I knew everything. (laughs) But your parents have made mistakes, hopefully learned from them. They're aware of things that you aren't aware of. They're seeking. They want what's best for you. They want to do what's best for you. And your parents have reasons for all the rules and restrictions they have set on you. Different parents have different rules, which can be frustrating sometimes. So maybe you might find yourself... Uh, telling your parents, but so-and-so's parents let them do this. Well, that's great. I'm not their parents, but I'm your parents. <laughs> Tough luck. This is the hand you drew. And it can be frustrating. When I was in high school, my Bible study group, I, I was meeting every week with a Bible study group on my own. This is, this is you know, they're, they're my parents should be thrilled that their kid is choosing to have a Bible study with his friends. And all my friends said, let's join a swing dancing class. And I said, okay, I'm going to be horrible at this because I'm a Baptist. So I've never danced before, but sounds good. So I tell my parents, my Bible study group is going to join a swing dancing class. And they were like, nope. I was like, what? They're, it's swing dancing. I'm not like, it's not hoochie mama dancing. It's swing dancing, right? Like, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm not going to know what to do. I'm just going to be folks that are like, nope. And then 20 years later, my dad went to a grandpa, granddaughter swing dance with my niece. I was so mad. But the point was like, and, and, and frankly, I got, a, I got to do way more things than my siblings did because I was the youngest. They were all way older and, and, you know, so I got to like play cards with like, you know, an ace and a king and all that stuff. I got to do crazy things. But um, when I went to college, I went to a conservative college and everybody there complained about how early the curfew was. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's so late. Like they all got there and their curfew was like here. And then now they got to college. It was here. My curfew was here. And I got to college. It was here. I'm like, this is awesome. Like I can be out so late. 1030. This is crazy. <laughs> but the point being, 
Obey your parents for it's pleasing to the Lord. See, the purpose of obeying your parents is pleasing the Lord. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother for it's the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, there is a point in your lives where parents, you have to transition your parenting to where it's no longer obedience, but rather rather instruction and guidance. And kids, at some point, you're going to have to transition to what does it look like to honor my parents as a 25-year-old, as a 30-year-old, as a 50-year-old? What does it look like to honor my parents? Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, this word can actually mean both parents, but I think, again, within the context of household codes, it's probably addressing fathers, although I think these principles are good for everybody. Do not embitter your children. This mirrors the earlier command to not be harsh with your wives. In other translations, it's translated provoke, irritate, antagonize, exasperate, drive to resentment. R. Kent Hughes says the, the sense of this Greek word is to eat, irritate one's children either by nagging or deriding them and by putting them down. As a youth pastor for many years, I unfortunately saw this many times, just parents putting their kids down, just, just, just you know, verbally destroying them. And as a coach in soccer, I've, I've seen this on the soccer field too with parents, you know, Dads, don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So if you're to treat your kids this way, if you're to discipline them in a way that's provoking or antagonizing them, they will become discouraged or embittered. So parents, love your kids continually, forgive extravagantly, and discipline consistently. So my experience as a youth pastor the kids that were most likely to be faithful followers of Christ when they were out of high school were kids who had parents that faithfully loved Christ while they were in high school. And then the second most likely kids to move on were kids that didn't have Christian parents that got saved and experienced the tremendous difference that Christ makes in a home, especially in their friends' lives. And the kids that really struggled after high school were often the kids whose parents didn't live out their faith, the parents who didn't take it seriously, and then the next generation just said, I didn't need this. Now, with that said, there, there are tons of examples where that doesn't work out. I've seen families where the husband and wife weren't faithful to Christ and the kids grew up and blossomed, and I've seen some of the best parents I've ever met, parents that are way better parents than I am, and watched their kids walk away from the faith after high school. But, but God has ordained this order so that we can see him work. So, so let's, let's wrap this up with two quick applications. First, Christ needs to reign supreme in every area of your life. Every area. We need to give God every single part of our life. We can't hold things back. Two weeks ago, we talked about our sexuality. Last week, our relationship with others. Today, family relationships, husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to kids, kids to parents. Christ needs to reign supreme in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job, in your friendships, in your family relationships, in your church relationships, in everything. But when we think about that, the home does have 
a, a very specific influence on the rest of our lives. I have here a stool that has been in my office since I got there, and I don't know why, and I apparently just don't clean up enough. So it's been there since I got there five years ago. I think I've used it three times. And this stool, if you'll notice, is broken. So I've had a broken stool in my office for five years and haven't done anything. And it's mainly because I don't notice. Sandy jokes because I'll, we'll be in the, I'm like, when did we put that, that uh, thing up on the wall? She's like, three years ago. Okay. Um, but it's broken, right? Because it's broken, oh man, it's more broken than I thought it was. <laughs> if there was weight put on this, it wouldn't stand. This, however, has been on the stage because it's not broken. I can sit on it and I have no concerns. When we think about our family, there's really four pillars. Husband to wife, wife to husband, children to kids, parents to kids, or children to parents, parents to kids. When Christ isn't supreme over our lives and these things break down, what happens is when you put the weight of life on it, and I actually didn't plan that to work that well. <laughs> but the point being this, what your home looks like affects every other area of your life. The first four years of our marriage were rough. And if we didn't have a covenant commitment to each other, we wouldn't have made it. But when God changed our marriage and restored friendship, restored love, and healed what was broken, it affected every other area of my life. Work was easier. Going through financial strain was easier. Because when I put the weight of all the other things of life on my house Because my marriage was founded in Christ, because I had put Christ as sovereign over my marriage and over my home, it withheld the weight. Your kids are going to experience things that we never had to go through. They're in a culture that is so different than what we experience, and they have pressures that go way beyond what we experience as kids and teenagers. They need stability. They need parents that love each other. They need parents that don't embitter them. They need parents that are consistent in their discipline. They need to know their security at home. Because everywhere else, they might find that they can't seem to find a place of security. The home should be a refuge. See, Christ needs to reign supreme so that we have a strong foundation. Second, When Christ reigns supreme in your marriage and parenting, it will paint a beautiful picture to the outside world. One of the things I love, I grew up in an amazing home. And because of that, my friends wanted to come to my house. They wanted to play games with my family. They wanted to play basketball with my dad. It was a beautiful picture. When they were in the Philippines... There was a woman that came up to my mom and she said, your husband really loves you, doesn't he? My mom goes, yeah. And he doesn't cheat on you with other women, does he? She goes, no. And he really cares about your needs, doesn't he? Yeah. She goes, I've never seen that. 
See, a, a, a marriage that is founda- has a foundation on biblical principles where husband loves his wife well and the wife submits well. It's this beautiful picture. In Ephesians 5, Paul put it this way. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. When Paul is describing marriage, he says this is meant to be a picture of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. So even when he's describing things, really he's describing Christ and the church. But then he says, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Love and respect, love and submission. It's this beautiful picture. So when people observe your marriage, does it cause them to see Jesus? When they observe your parenting, does it cause them to see Jesus? Kids, teens, when your friends see the way that you respond to your parents' rules, even if the curfew is early, even if they don't allow swing dancing, does it show a picture of Christ. See, marriage is designed to be this beautiful picture that portrays to a world of confusion that God is good, that He loves us. He's created us with a purpose, and He wants what's best for us. And church, I want your marriages to thrive. Sandy and I, this week, we've just been having fun. It's just... I keep kissing her a lot. It's just been fun. I don't know. <laughs> Studying this has been fun. But I know for a lot of you, right now, marriage isn't fun. And I've been there. I'll tell you what, there is nothing more fun in life than a, than a fun marriage. I just, I want to go kiss you right now. That's what I want to do. During our wedding, I was the one dinging the thing because I kept wanting to kiss Sandy. <clears throat> They're like, Phil, stop it. I'm like, no, this is really fun. <clears throat> but I, I just I want you to know, if your marriage is struggling, come, come talk to us. We'd love to help. We have Jer- Jared does, does uh, biblical counseling. Sandy and I do marital counseling. We have places like Hope Restored in Calvary, Greenville, where they have a one-week intensive that is so helpful. We've had some people in our church go to that. They have weekend shortened intensives that you can go to. Weekend are members out there. There's so many tools and resources. Come find help. Because marriage is a beautiful thing when it's designed how God wants it to be designed. And, and recognize that, that God is for you. He's written these rules, these, these instructions for your benefit. Because He wants you to thrive. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder. You are good and you do good. As the world, outside world looks at your instructions given in your word, they say it's backwards. They say it's out of touch with reality. They say it's oppressive. But they don't see the beautiful picture. Lord, help husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to sacrifice for them, to be self-giving, to put their needs ahead of our own. 
Lord, help wives to respect their husbands, to sacrifice for them, to put their needs in front of their own. Lord, help our parents, Lord, to be consistent and loving. Help our kids to obey the parents, even in the rules that seem to not make sense, as is fitting to the Lord. But Lord, help every area of our life, Lord, to come under Your sovereignty. You've called us, Lord, to surrender all of our lives. Not just parts, not just pieces, not just this area and that area, but every area of our life to surrender to You, to to submit to You, Lord, as our Savior, and trust that You have what's best for us. Lord, thank You for this group that's going to be singing today, and and thank You for the blessing they've been. And uh, Lord, help us to use these principles in our lives. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen.